You know, anytime you use the word tricky multiple times in a show, it's probably going to be a good one. Welcome back to Being at Work. I'm your host, Andrea Butcher. And what I love about today's conversation is that we talk about the tricky, challenging spot that HR is in right now in such a real way. Our guest has a bold perspective on HR. It's an honest perspective that comes from a lot of experience and insight. He also has a clear lesson learned across his career that's an important message for all leaders. Be deliberate about the work you choose to take on. Terry Wallace has led human resource functions in multiple big brand, large enterprise organizations. And he's using his vast expertise today as the CEO of Alinus Inc. But what you really need to know about Terry is that because of all he's learned across these experiences, he has important insights on today's HR function, as you'll hear. Listen in as we talk about really adding value to your organization. We'll also challenge the mantra, seat at the table. And we'll talk about defining HR for the organization you're working for, not for organizations you've worked with in the past. Check it out. I'll start way back. I grew up in a military family. We moved every other you know, two or three years my entire life. We've lived all over the United States, spent three years in New Zealand, went to high school in Australia, uh, ended up moving back before I was even 18. My family was still there just to finish school in the U.S. So I was quite, quite the nomad. I really do believe I learned more, most definitely more, from moving around and all the travel and the experiences that, that comes with that than I did in, in, in school. Of course, it's a blend. So I started out there and in my mind, I tell you, I was hell bent on being in the military. When I was 14 years old, uh, one of the pivotal moments was my father worked at the U.S. Embassy down in Australia. And I remember going in to visit him uh, periodically at the embassy and the emb- our U.S. embassies around the world are, are, are guarded by uh, U.S. Marines. We'd drive through and I'd be in the back seat there and I'd see these Marines and I was just blown away by them. I just absolutely blown away by them. So at age 14, that was it. I already knew what I wanted to do. It was, it was over. It was done. What was it about them that blew you away? Their presence. The, it really, I, it, it's, it's one of those things that's so hard to define, kind of like virtuosity. You know, if something's, someone's exceptional at what they do, it's so hard to articulate what it is. They were just so put together. They were so professional in the manner in which they, everything from posture to how they spoke, their nonverbals, they just, they were just absolutely exceptional people in my eyes. And you saw that, and was like, I want to be that. Absolutely. So 14, as this young boy, boom, that was it. And that's exactly what I did. Fast forward a little bit, I enlisted in the Marine Corps. I spent a number of years in the Marine Corps, a combination of active duty and reserve time, and enjoyed every bit of it, and I wouldn't take, any, take it back for a second. I did decide that it was not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Uh, so I got a taste of the civilian world through that process, because I, I went through university during that time period. So I decided, I, you know, literally and figuratively put in my time and then decided I was going to try this civilian world out and knew I enjoyed and had a great deal of respect for many aspects of military life. And I, truth, looking back, I don't know that I was fully ready to move into 
complete civilian world. You know, again, it's what I knew. There, there was rigor, there was structure, there was clarity, there was all these things. So I took some tests and it became a police officer. So I was a police officer in the suburbs outside of Philadelphia. Let me go back a little bit from the Marine Corps. You give me a year, I can't think of a bad word to say about the Marine Corps, and I never will. Just absolutely exceptional leadership at every single level, other than its reason for existence. Just I can't think of a negative thing about it. Then there was a law enforcement as a police officer. My, my take there is very similar. Some of the most exceptional people I've ever met in my life, ever worked with. I mean, their hearts, heads, and minds all in the right place. And I will tell you, hands down, to this day, the most difficult job I've had. Just brutally difficult, brutally, in many ways. So I was a police officer for about a year when I decided I wasn't sure that's what I want to do for the rest of my life again. So, uh, and really, this came down to... I don't want to say it was the difficulty. I, I have no problem with difficulty. I have no problem with the swing shifts and the long hours and all those type of things. I felt it was so such an emotionally, physically draining role. I think some folks had an ability to turn that off and on, you know, and be able to 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 regulate all of that external influence. I struggled with that a little bit. I really did, and um, it's a tricky profession. Very very difficult difficult uh, profession. About a year into it, I decided I was looking on, looking into doing something else, and I went back to school. And the main driver here was, and this is going to be a tricky, to- tricky topic. I went from the Marine Corps to law to the police department. I thought these were going to be very similar things. What I found that they were very different. Like I said, the Marine Corps anchored in leadership and respect, and, and just just solid, solid, solid. I didn't find that in, in where I landed uh, as a as a as a police officer. I didn't see leadership. I didn't even see sound management. I saw I saw supervision and policing of police. And, you know, that's a whole other topic we could talk about. And I was blown, I really, really absolutely blown away by that. And I saw the impact this had on people's lives, their families, you know, you, you name it. And, and what I mean by that is low, poor leadership, low managerial acumen, and just kind of this supervision focus. It intrigued me. I decided to go back to school, uh, focus on it, get my MBA. And my focus was on manage, management science, right? Understanding what it meant to manage and lead people because uh, I'd seen it in different ways. Did you recognize at the time that that's what was happening was the lack of leadership was so apparent because you'd had such strong leadership in the military? Did you realize that at the time? I did. I struggled with articulating it in the way that I, I eventually was able to do so. But mo- most definitely, I mean, you, you could feel it. You could feel it. You saw it, you saw it in the daily interactions and in, in processes, in, in the different policies and the different ways things uh, were, were handled and addressed. And again, these are very different professions. You know, some people may think they're similar. But that must have been really hard for you going from an environment that where, where you had such strong leadership. I mean, you, you called that, you know, that exceptional environment. That must have been really hard going into an environment where you didn't have that. It doesn't sound like you had that at all. What was that like for you? It was eye-opening. It's one of those things you, it's hard to appreciate when someone's exceptional at something because it's, it's so, in, until you don't have it, right? Until you don't have it. It's, it's, like, it's, a, it's that amazing coach. And until you don't have that, and then you have, I'll say, a mediocre coach. You're like, wow, I didn't realize all the things that person used to do and say and how they used to approach things were, were so exceptional until you have something to balance it off of, right? Something to see it in contrast. So I uh, went back to school, decided 
for lack of a better term, I'll say that kind of started, became obsessive about it, um, kind of consumed me, the manner in which you, you lead and you manage. And, and like I said, because I really started personally understanding the impact. It wasn't just on performance. It's on, it's, it's emotional. You're affecting people. You're affecting their families, their children, their, their, the community. I mean, it's a real, you know, rock in the middle of a pond. You know what I mean? Those waves start going out and they, they can either be very positive or very negative. So I uh, went back to school, got very focused on it, on the, the focus of management leadership and uh, spoke to a number of professors, I had a great deal of respect for. And I, in essence, said, I, I feel very much behind the eight ball. I wanted to drink from the fire hose. I wanted to get into companies and, and focus on how do you amplify exceptional leadership and management and, and, and the productivity, productivity that it brings, but also the impact that you would have on those employees, on those colleagues, on those people, on those clients, whatever it might be. So very consistently, they said, you got to get into management consulting. Main reason being, you can you hit the ground at a dead dead sprint, right? Uh, you got no choice. You're 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 in it. It's going to be long hours, lots of travel, and 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 it's a lot of work. And I was I was all about that. Had no problem with that. So I transitioned from the police department to management consulting. That was a real transition because I could tell. I to this day I've got at home a binder at home that has 36 rejection letters, and I think from different management consulting firms, everything from from Bain to McKinsey to KPMG to Deloitte to, 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 you know, you name them, Anderson, Accenture, whatever it was at the time. Looking back, I realized they didn't know what to do with me. Marine, police officer, MBA who wants to be a business strategy, you know, management consultant. So I eventually got the nod from Deloitte, which was fantastic uh, after, after they rejected me for one other position, but that's all right. Perseverance is, is a key attribute, isn't it? Very much so. So I ended up, I uh, started at Deloitte. And uh, another firm, a firm that I, boy, I tell you, just so impressed from day one to this day. I worked at Deloitte for a number of years, exceptional firm, deeply thoughtful people, focus on strategy, but also the implementation, the execution. What does it really mean? You know, how does it really get done? You know, when the rubber hits the road, which I always found so, so, so impressive. Bright folks, bright folks. Was there for a number of years. And then I got married. We had a little girl, um, my wife, Michelle, my daughter, Michaela. And I realized I had missed the first four years of her life and I didn't want to miss anymore. So I, at that time, geez, I was leaving home Sunday night and I was coming home very late Friday into Saturday morning, most weeks, most weeks. So an opportunity came up to actually one of the clients that we had, uh, Pfizer, opportunity came, came up. I took that opportunity. I transitioned into, I'll say, industry uh, from the consulting world. And then I was at Pfizer for about 13, 14 years. Another organization, boy, I can't say I can't say anything bad about phenomenal, phenomenal company, great people, very sharp, very, very sharp people who do exceptional work every day. I had great opportunities at Pfizer, great run at Pfizer. One of the things I'll call out about uh, my time at Pfizer is even that first job I had, no job that I had during my tenure at Pfizer existed before I had it. So this now Pfizer is a big, you know, 150 plus, I forget how many years uh, Pfizer is now uh, old, old company. It's got tremendous formality and structure and all those type of things. But, it, you know, it's not a foolish company, right? This company knew that it needed to continue to evolve and adapt and adjust and do that type of thing. So yeah, every single job I had at Pfizer did not exist until I had it. 
But that seems like a theme for you leading up, right? Going from Marines to the police, going from police to to get an MBA and management consulting. I, I feel like you just naturally step into new. Yeah, I, you know, it's one of those things. I, I I enjoy the challenge of things. There's no doubt about it. I, I mean, that sounds like a, some weird little T-shirt type slogan, but if it's not difficult, it's not worth doing, you know. And and what's difficult to one person, then again, it's not, not necessarily difficult to another. And I think the, the the change of these roles, it and coming back to the point of being deliberate, that that level of being deliberate evolves, and and that um, kind of the aperture starts to focus more as you go along. If you do it right, I, I guess I would say, you know, at first, it literally was a fourteen year old kid seeing people out the window of a car. Oh, that's my career choice. You know, it's not it's not all the information you really would want to have, and then you start taking what you really liked and enjoyed about something and what you didn't, you know, and then you start to adjust and you start to focus and you start to, you know, dial it in and you start to dial it in and then something grabs you. Yeah. And in my case, it was particularly from the, the um, Marine Corps into law enforcement. It was the, the effect of strong leadership and management and how positive that can be. So that grabbed me. I, that, that became more of a purpose focus, which moved me into obviously management consulting. So Definitely significant changes, but I, I'm uncomfortable. I am comfortable in saying that all with a, a level of intent. Again, to the point of they, they were deliberate. It wasn't just didn't happen to just fall in front of me one day. And clearly, a clearly a stick-to-itiveness about it. Thirty-six rejection letters, and you kept going. And what was it that kept you going in that? Oh, I just wanted it, and I knew I could do it really. I I knew I could be good at it. So you weren't going to stop until you got a yes. Yeah, it was going to happen. It was going to happen. I wish it happened sooner. You know, it's it's a tricky one. That that stick to it and that you know, perseverance, call whatever you want. It's like anything. Um, use it too much, it's it's not it's no longer a strength. So that's something that's not always served me well. I'll be honest. I think it served me well in that particular case. But that that's another part of that learning. You know, it's if something's not working, you can either just hammer away, hammer away until it eventually does, or you, you got to make that call or, or it's not the thing to keep driving at. That's real tricky. That is real tricky. So it has served me well many times. There's a few times it hasn't, but in that particular case, it did serve me well. Now that you know that about yourself, how do you discern whether or not to lean in or to let it go? I think that comes with a, a little bit of age uh, and just looking and playing out scenarios. You know, I'm thinking, thinking through scenarios and, and, and how those opportunities may unfold. You've also got to think of that balance and the, and, and the price that's being paid. What else could you be doing with that time? What else could you be doing with that money? What else could you be? What are the implications on your relationships, professional, personal, all those type of things? Time is valuable. Time is valuable. I've come back to what, what else could you be doing with that time? If that seems like the right answer. I think another one would be, why are you turning away from it? Would never want to turn away from something just because it was difficult. You know, the, the right answer is I was going after something that is actually not the right thing for me or my family or whatever at this time. You know, that's a reason to turn away, you know, not because it's difficult. Now, you know, there's a flip side. I mean, there's additional piece. You can also chase something that's, that's unattainable. That's, that's just foolish. You know what I mean? That's just foolish. But you know, that can get tricky too. What, what is it? What does unattainable mean? You know, you've asked someone that's, Elon Musk, what that means, everyone would say that's unattainable. He says it's not, you know, I'm not comparing myself to him by any stretch, but you understand what I'm getting at. And while you were at Pfizer, 
um, you set a goal for yourself to be the head of HR in a global organization with a noble purpose. It's an easy thing to say, but I tell you, that took me, uh, truth, it took me a good year. I knew that I needed, this comes back down to that bringing it into focus. So I'd gone on this journey, continued to focus, continued to focus, and I realized that I needed, I'll refer to it as my North Star. I needed something to pull me, to help me not only understand what roles I should go for, but what roles I shouldn't, I shouldn't go for. Because if there's a role that, okay, this one makes more money. At the time, I knew in my head, my answer would have been yes. Yes, more responsibility, you know, more money, whatever, you know, whatever me that those things come with responsibility, right? But I realized at that point in time, I was just going to be chasing responsibility. And that was not going to be a, a thoughtful way about, you know, managing my career. So I needed a North Star. So I, um, oh man, I read all kinds of books and articles and this type of thing about career planning and thoughts. And I, I hammered that out. Uh, head of HR for a global company with a noble purpose. That is what I wanted. That is absolutely what I wanted. And that's what I worked with for a good, probably 15 or 16 years from then on out. And uh, you could, you know, it's debatable whether I actually got it. Uh, at some point in time, I went through Pfizer and I realized I wasn't going to get that at Pfizer. Various reasons for that big company, the whole, you know, the whole deal. I also was at a point at Pfizer where each year, you know, I had a big old budget, you know, big old team, you know, global responsibilities. And, and it's uh, each year was, okay, we've got to reduce the budget by this much. Next year, just keep reducing and reducing it. It wasn't the wrong thing to be doing. Let me be very clear about that. But boy, it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't inspiring. You know, and I, I realized I could do my job at that point in time. I could do it and do it well for another several years and just keep tightening the screws and saving money and getting more efficient and effective, you know, efficient. So an opportunity came to me during that time period. And I was in that frame of mind to take an opportunity with this small startup company uh, that I had never heard of, uh, obviously at the time, which I eventually declined. I, you know, I met with some people there and I said, mm, this is not for me. I was then reached out to by, by a gentleman that I've got the utmost respect for a gentleman named John Reed Doddick, or JRD, hands down the most exceptional HR exec I have ever known. And I've ventured to say that exists. Just absolutely brilliant person, mind, heart, soul, all just huge, just, just exceptional human being. Uh, sat down, had dinner with him. Uh, he was moving into this company. At the end of the dinner, we both said, that's it, we're doing this thing. And that was WeWork. Uh, so when we started at WeWork, it was, I don't know, a little over a thousand people. After three years, I think it was about 16,000 people. I mean, I think many people know the story of WeWork. I would share just exceptional growth, extraordinary people who worked, I mean, woof, tirelessly. Yeah. And that kind of growth, I mean, that's just, I just can't even get my arms around that. That's a completely different organization. And that, that was a heck of a learning, learning experience, uh, as you can imagine. I enjoyed it. Why during the time I, I don't know that I could say that every day, <laughs> but but that's one of those things. I knew I was going to love it, you know, down the road a little bit. But yeah, that growth is is pretty much unheard of. I'll even add to this that it was that massive growth at a time when the turnover was was very high. So that's that's not going from that figure to you know exponential growth when everyone sticks around. You're just constantly rotating people. Oh yeah, the turnover was between fifteen and twenty percent. 
I mean, so people were coming and going and leaving. And so when you talk about going from a thousand to sixteen thousand, my goodness, whew, uh, yeah, that was that was a, that was a huge effort. And that's just that's just in the uh, that's just in the uh, talent acquisition type space, just bringing people on, as you know well. That's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there's so much more uh, dealing there. I mean, you go with folks that you're bringing on that they have their it's their first job out of school, say their first job. Then very quickly, they're a manager of people. Then very quickly, they're a manager of managers, which, as you know, is, is very different than being a manager of individuals. You know, managers of managers, you know, and this was happening within a couple months. So naturally, you're going to have a, a challenge when it comes to just seasoned managerial acumen. You know, a person, they're managing a suite of managers you know, three, four, five, six months after getting their first job. It was tricky. And um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot out there about we work, you know, good, bad, whatever it might be. At the end of the day, what I would say is there was a lot of very smart people who worked tirelessly to grow that business. And there were, of course, other dynamics and things that occurred, but just a Herculean effort by so many people just moved mountains, absolutely moved mountains. And through that experience through the Pfizer experience and others, you know, you've developed a strong opinion and perspective on HR. I mean, you've gotten to work with, you said, hands down, the best HR exec, JRD, that there is. So what do you see, you know, right now as you're consulting with businesses and advising HR leaders, like what, what have you learned, Terry, that that has been helpful to what's happening in the world right now and what HR leaders need to be aware of. It's a tricky one. I, my pause there is just, it, it depends on the business, right? It depends so much on the business, but there are some things that are going to be pretty consistent across the board. Number one is from an HR perspective, my learning was you've got to know the business. You've got to, you can't come in and just be an HR expert and get plugged into, you know, what ABC corporation or whatever the heck it is. Um, you, you've got to know the business. And that's something I certainly could have done um, a bit better when I got when I got a little tr- tricky at, 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 at Pfizer. But I had the time at Pfizer to better understand the business. But very, com- you know, pharmaceutical industry, life sciences industry, very, very complicated business. We work was a much more simplified business. But that's a little different. One is understanding business, then is understanding the the, the dynamics of the organization, right? And people, it's quit. It's too simple to just say the culture. You got to understand the culture. I don't know that that means enough, but I would say number one, the business getting a little bit more granular. You got to understand decision making process. How do decisions get made in that particular business? If I had to pick the most important thing, I would say that is it. And and you can't oversimplify this thing. You know, often it's well, it goes up the it goes up the reporting lines. You know, blah blah blah, and the CEO makes the decisions. You know, we all know that's not true uh, unless you've got an organization that's only three or four or four or five people. Then that's, that makes sense. But how do decisions get made? What level of certainty is required to, to make a decision? You know, a company like Pfizer, it, it was more of this kind of 95-5 company, you know, 95% level of certainty. And I'm not talking about in the R&D world. I mean, that's, that's a whole different animal. You know what I mean? I'm talking about in the HR space. But in, in a company like Pfizer, and there's many different organizations where it's just going to be inherent in that organization that 80-20 doesn't work. We need a higher level of certainty. You know, we need to understand that this is going to work for the vast majority of people in the right way it's going to work. And, you know, that acceptance of error is different. 
That's in companies, that's in industries, that's in countries. Why does that matter so much? Why do you call that the most important thing? It's how you get things done. It's by making decisions. That's alignment. That's how you that's how you allocate resources, people, budget, systems. That's how you 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 pick the right systems, the right processes, you get the right budget involved. You get the right staffing, you, you know, how are you training people? You know, where do you need new roles for the future of changes of the organization? It all comes to what decisions are getting made. Yeah, allows you to navigate everything you're doing. Everything, everything. Yeah. And and the decision making piece is what level of certainty? I'll give you an example. So Pfizer was just like 90-10. And again, that varied too, because then you get different countries in there. For those of you who've got global experience, you know, if you're making a decision or a change, let's say a process or policy change. It's very different if it's in Brazil versus Japan versus Germany versus France versus the United States. It is very different, very, very different. So that adds a whole nother level of complexities. And you can go at this a couple of different ways. If you want to be impactful and make things happen, you've got to navigate that. You've got to figure that out. You've got to understand we can do this in Brazil and the U.S. and Mexico or Canada, but it's going to take an additional six months in Germany or France. It's going to take an additional year in, in Japan. or you, you know what I mean? Because you have to work through so many different aspects. They're cultural or they're, they're business related, whatever it might be. You know, flip side, you take a company like WeWork. WeWork, I somewhat jokingly will say it was a 51-49. If it felt right in the moment, just do it. If it wasn't right, then we'd change it next week. That was one of WeWork's great strengths. The agility of that organization was just extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. But juxtapose that with Pfizer. So how you lead through that in any capacity, like knowing that is going to be so helpful. Yeah. And, and you've got to get comfortable with it or maybe not even comfortable with it. I'll tell you, the decision-making at WeWork, I was very uncomfortable with it and I could have done better with it, but um, I, I recognized it, you didn't need a business case. You didn't need every single functional leader to be all on the same page and all their reports to be all on the same page and everybody to understand the business rationale and case and the, and the implications and the, the unintended consequences of every time you made a decision. At Pfizer or a different type of organization, you did need all that. So if you're going to get something done, you need to get decisions made and you got to understand how you do that in that particular organization. Some organizations are very much consensus driven. You've got to have that taken care of before the decision actually comes to the table, right? Have you spoken to all the right players? Have you spoken to all the folks that this is going to have an impact in their organizations, their functions, whatever it might be? So when you go to have that, you know, you can look around the room and all the heads are going to nod. There's other organizations where the best idea wins in the moment. Bang. You've got to know the organization you're in. You've got to know how that works. And I, I appreciate how you named that, the dynamics. And yeah, the most important dynamic that you've just, just outlined for us is the decision-making process and the level of, uh, the level of certainty that's required. Yeah, it's, it's those subtleties, those behind-the-scenes kinds of things that drive the way the organization works. I'd say that's definitely the most important, but but interconnected there is going to be role clarity and information flow. So I'd say decision-making, I'll just say decision-making, role clarity and information flow. Role clarity always sounds easy. It's one of those things. Uh, does everyone have a job description? You know, great, but that's not role clarity. Like, like really, what is somebody's role, you know? And are you an organization that has overlap or do you have gaps? I think most organizations have some over some level of overlap of roles. You don't want to have a gap. 
right? The gaps, we did our part over in this function, then we hand it off to some other function and they what they're getting is not work for them, right? You want, I believe you want, you want an overlap, not a huge overlap. You know what I mean? You want people stepping all over each other, but you want some level of overlap. So you can actually get some nice healthy tension there. And, and I'll emphasize healthy. Um, you know, we can't have all functions in everybody else's space, but you do want to be connected well enough to know that the handoffs are going to occur. Different functions are going to get what they need from the other functions. And if it's not pristine, which it almost never is, there's an existing dialogue that's going to take place. You know, they're going to massage and rub that, figure that out, which would get me to my third. And I'm going off the cuff here a little bit, so bear with me. But I do think it leans into the third one, I would say, is information flow. Is the right information getting to the right people at the right time? That's a little different if you're talking about PR and marketing and, and you know communication campaigns. I, I totally understand that. I'm talking about within the organization, how that organization is seeking to get decisions made and get shit done. This is another one that can be wildly oversimplified. Well, we you know we have Slack, or you know we do most of our things through Zoom, or we have you know we meeting you know, meetings whatever. Okay, that's fair, but but no, really, how does information get? How does information move? Who's moving what information? How that gets? That's very tricky as well. That's very tricky. I personally believe that falls down to strong management and manage because I do believe you need to lean into the let's call it this structural hierarchy, for lack of a better word, of the organization. I mentioned that at the end because I do think it's in that order: uh, decision making, role clarity, information flow. I deliberately didn't say organizational structure or org design. Of course, you have to have an organizational structure. Of course, you need to have some level of this organization design that people uniformly understand. I do believe many organizations put that at the top and then maybe or maybe not think about those other three things. We've got a CEO, we've got a CFO, we've got a head of CHRO, we've got a chief growth, you know, whatever the different officers are. And then they've got their functions and they kind of roll out. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing here a little bit, but I don't think I'm going too far out on the limb. Of course, you're going to need, you got to focus on those things. Boy, I don't believe that they are, that structure and the, and the boxes and the lines is what gets things done. I do believe it's the other three things, truly understanding how decisions get made and being able to navigate that space, uh, understanding the role, clarity and where you've got overlaps and hopefully no gaps. And how you how you move information throughout the organization, making sure people are getting the right information. So how does that how does that work? You know, you, you step into a new HR position in an organization and you're focused on like going deeper in the business, understanding the structure of how things get done. What does that look like? Boy, there's not an easy answer for that one. And and truth be told. It, I, I'll come back to this. I think it looks different for 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 every organization. You you've got to get in there though. You've got to get in there and see it. You've got to get in there and experience it. You've got to tease out because now you can also introduce you know personality proclivities. You know what I mean? Um, you know the different type of managers or leaders, how they work with others or don't work with others, and you know that gets really 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 tricky. So it's not going to be a surface role. I mean, it's gritty. It's digging in. It's asking hard questions. It's paying close attention, doing a lot of observation. I think internally, the most important thing, you've got, you've got to have the right intention. Uh, so it's not, it's not to, you're looking to commandeer more resources into your function, you know what I mean? So you got to have the, I'll, I'll even say trust. So 
trust in, in, in the intention and the competency of the people that are going to be thinking this through and, and doing this work. I think another piece would be if you're going to start focusing on decisions, you've got to make some decisions in the process. And that's where you've got to agree with one of the folks that you work with is, is it okay to make the wrong, the wrong decision? I think it's, it's so easy. And many organizations say this, and I'm generally speaking, but I know it to be true. It's okay to make mistakes. Let's go make mistakes, you know, because that's how you, that's how you become successful. You make, you make a lot of mistakes and you learn from your mistakes, but then someone makes a mistake and their career is derailed by it. You know what I mean? Or they lose their job or they, it's probably less immediate job loss as opposed to career derailment, or it's, it's a loss of some level of relationship capital, formal relationship capital within the organization. You know, I don't think it's okay to make mistakes. It should never be okay to just make mistakes. It's okay to make mistakes if they were very well thought out and communicated and they were, the decisions were made with the best information available at the time. And if it then ends up not being the right answer as because things panned out in some way, shape or form. Yeah, that's okay. It's not okay to just run around and make mistakes. I, I would say it comes down to using the word deliberate, be much more deliberate about these words. It's, it's, it's too easy to say these superficial blanket things and, and, and people are smart you know people are real smart they, you, you say that to the organization you know ceo so-and-so go out there and and make some mistakes <laughs> no that's that's nonsense you know nobody's nobody's buying that i mean really tease that out and articulate what you actually mean some of these hr buzzwords you are not a big fan of because they are superficial blanket thoughts they're bumper sticker thoughts because you know being being deliberate and intentional i mean that that has been the theme throughout our entire conversation i mean that's obviously core to who you are and how you lead and you've seen the impact of that inside organizations you've served talking about the the challenge of hr i mean that's that's a big one um it's a very big one i think one of the first challenges is how do you, how do you segment the what value you bring into the organization? I mean, that just comes comes down to it. And I and I do think there's that benefit of that. Maybe this is I wouldn't say benefit. This is kind of my consulting time period coming in. Is well, if you're not adding value, then why you don't even be there? You know, you can remove a consultant out of the room pretty quick. You know what I mean? Itself, you save yourself thousands, if not millions, of dollars in the process if you don't feel that there's value is is coming along. But how do you add value? And boy, you got. I think we've got to challenge ourselves, I say we from an HR perspective, to get, get more detailed and granular about that. And I don't know that you need multiple KPIs and measurement and all these type of things. You know, of course, you're going to have some of that, but it can't be just elevate, elevate uh, employee engagement or, you know, blah, you know, the, the just things. You've got to dig into it. Yeah. Like why? Why would we do that? Yeah. Yeah. And what, is it, what does that even mean? First of all, yeah, why we do it? And and my personal opinion, it shouldn't mean how did they answer these ten questions, you know? Because really, that like, let me take that back. Unless those are very, very well thought out questions, you know, um, and what you're doing, and you have a real, real comfort that you're getting truth, real, honest answers for people, because uh, that's when you got to be honest with yourself. You know, are people going to be? Do people feel secure enough to answer these questions as they truly believe? Who knows? You got, you've got to look in that mirror. Boy, you got to be honest with yourself. Uh, are people going to actually do they trust the organization well enough to know that the intention is the right one, and they're going to do good? They're going to do good. 
the right things with this information? That's a, that's a big question. That's a big question to, to, for organizations to ask. So, so helpful. So we, uh, we have to challenge ourselves to get more deliberate or more detailed and granular, you said, which again, sounds very deliberate. Yeah. The, the other thing I would say is, is I'll start at high level, but what is HR's role, right? And so what, and I think a bit real important one is there's other things that need to be defined as well. So you can't define what HR's role is unless you, without def, being really thoughtful about how you define what is the role of the manager in an organization? What is the manager's job? So you talk about things like retention or development, you know, or even attraction, you know, attraction, retention, development of employees. So is that HR's job? Is that the manager's job? Is that some function that's not even not HR's job? You think about things like analytics, human capital analytics. Is that HR's? Or do you have some shared service function within your organization that, that focuses on an, all analytics to include uh, HR-related an, an, analytics? You can't define it in a vacuum. You know, it's easy to say, well, this is what other organizations do. We should do that. There's a lot of that that takes place. And I've been guilty of that many times. That was one of my... I made a lot of mistakes uh, as I moved into into WeWork, and a big one was: this is how we've done it. This is what's done, and this is what's worked really well in other companies. Bang! That's not the right starting point. It's just not. So I'd say uh, you got to you got to define HR's role. Coming back to those things, right? Um, role, but you have to do that, and you can't do that without without also defining what is the role of the executive leader. What is the role of the managers or managers? What is the role of a manager? That's a big. That is a big, 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 or else you're going to get in a situation where managers say, look, I need X number of research scientists. I need this. The people that I have, I've just taken on this new role. I've inherited this new team. I think their skill set is not what we need. I don't think they get Okay. So is that HR's role to focus on that? Is it their job to focus on that? Like who's, first of all, is it even accurate? You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, how are you assessing that accuracy? That comes down to the analytics. That comes down to the true, open, honest, trust, trusting information flow. Maybe that's the wrong manager. You know, you 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 really got to dig into those things. But a big one, if I could, I'll just encapsulate this a little bit, but to find that role of HR, how are you adding value, like real, real value to an organization, and um, and you can't define it in a vacuum. Yeah, you've given us lots of things to think about and look at. And I just, I really love that getting really clear about what's the role of the manager. Yeah. And is, and how is HR setting the manager up for success, right? What are the processes and the systems that we can put in place and how can we equip the manager, the manager, I'm saying it, you know, broadly <laughs> to be, to be successful. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a real important one. And I, I'll use again, some of my examples. So Deloitte was a good one. Deloitte's internal HR function. I don't know that I knew any of those folks. I don't doubt the folks that were there did an exceptional job. Let me be real clear about that because I truly mean it. And I think part of why they were so exceptional is probably because I didn't know them because you didn't have to. The other part was the managerial outcome in that organization was so high, so high. When it came down to attracting and hiring and developing and, you know, performance management, you know, and that wasn't just some some little form or process. I mean, that, that was a third job in that space. One job was client service, you know, what you were doing for your clients that work, you know, there was some aspect that was future business development, depending on how senior you were, of course. And then there was another, it felt like a 
part-time job and focusing on your performance and the management of your performance and your, your evolution within that firm. But all this took place and there weren't HR people anywhere. I mean, because it was, and I'm not saying they shouldn't be. I'm saying in that organization, it made sense because of the high managerial acumen. We work all put in a very different category. And again, as I mentioned earlier, you've got people very early in their careers kind of, you know, drinking from the fire hose, working, you know, 12, 14 plus hours, you know, the, the, the whole deal, more responsibility coming to them every month, you know what I mean, that they may or may not even be ready for. But it was just that was the growth. Boy, HR needed to do all the recruiting. They needed to do the training. They needed to do, you know, all those type of things because those uh, those employees, those managers weren't, weren't doing that. They were, I'll say in many cases, already overwhelmed with what they needed to do on a day-to-day basis. Uh, not right nor wrong. It just was that reality, you know. But I, I think in my, again, my experience, uh, it's it's this HR trying to find how to add value. And I remember that for a long time, there was all these uh, you know, articles and there's a number of books, uh, but many articles. Uh, HR deserves a seat at the table, right? That was the big topic. You know what I mean? If you don't, you know, the, who does the head of HR report to, right? It should be the, the CEO, of course. Well, I don't know. You, that, that's something you, that's something you got to earn. That's not something you, you just proclaim. You know what I mean? You got to earn that. You got to show that. You got to prove that. You got you to make that case and prove it every day. Just saying you deserve a seat at the table. Oh, my Lord. That's a terrible approach. I, I actually think, if you don't mind me going off a little bit here, I, 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 if, you, if you just choose to proclaim that, I think, in essence, what you're saying is you don't really deserve that seat. Because if that's how you that's how you feel you get the seat at the table is by just saying I deserve it, then you're the last person who should be sitting at that table. Yeah, show your value. Yeah, I mean, the, so the the empowering statement is I am adding value for the conversation at the table, and that's that's why it's important. You want to get to the point where that that it's it's not even a question anyone's asking. You know what I mean? Like. Well, how could you not be running this business? And, and I'm in I'm in the camp that I'm not I'm not sure that it's it's right. I, it's not for every organization. I mean, the, there are plenty of HR functions in different companies that they shouldn't be there, and it just it just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense based on that business or that function or that you know whatever it might be. It's got to actually make sense for that business. It's another one. It's easy to say, well, our people are the most important thing of any business, so. People equals HR. Therefore, HR is, is so important. That's a wild oversimplification. Yeah. Well, and it goes back to your point about the manager. I mean, that's really where the the value is and that that person's experience, employee experience. If you've got an HR function that is exceptional, it may be very small, right? It could be very small. And it's this is an organization that does such an ex- exceptional job finding Again, I'm oversimplifying, but the right people at the right time with the right skill set, the right cultural connectivity, and and they're exceptional managers, and they build and and you're 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 elevating people throughout the organization, not only on their their impact, but do they make those around them more effective? You know, there's got a lot of different ways to say that, and that's a that's an easy question to ask, but boy, it's a tough question to answer. Do you make those around you better? Yeah. And it takes confidence and courage to ask that question. And are you actually elevating those people throughout the organization? Again, I'll come back and say, and is that ultimately what you want as an organization? 
maybe you don't want that as an organization. Maybe you're looking for individual contributors who are just brilliant. They have brilliant ideas. <laughs> you know what I mean? They can't, they can't manage themselves out of a paper bag, but they are brilliant. Well, and unless you're deliberate about asking those questions, yeah, you're not in a position to, to even know what you need, right? You got to start with, start with where you're going. Well, Terry, this is so good. I mean, I, I'm so grateful for this conversation because it's a challenging one and it's, these are the conversations that make HR leaders better, you know, is, is really taking a step back and thinking about like, what value am I bringing to the business? What does my business need right now? I, I love how you broke down. I so appreciate that just going deeper into the structure and the dynamics of the business, the decision-making processes, are there overlap in role or there gaps in between roles? What's the information flow? Is the right info getting to the right people? It's just, it's, it's the depth that I really appreciate. So thank you. Thank you for sharing all of that so openly, so much candor. If our listeners want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? You can find me on LinkedIn. Terry Wallace. I don't know how many of us are out there, but you can find me on LinkedIn, no problem. Or send me an email at uh, terry.wallace at venturex.com. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to never miss a being at work story.